Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 57 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is documentary filmmaker Morgan Spurlock who shot to fame with the release of his 2004 film Supersize Me, in which he ate nothing but McDonald's for a month. He went on to produce other feature documentaries, such as Where in the World is Osama Bin Laden and Palm Wonderful Presents, The Greatest Movie Ever Sold, as well as TV shows such as 30 Days. His most recent film, Comic-Con 4, A Fan's Hope, takes an inside look at one of the world's largest pop culture events, the 2010 San Diego Comic-Con. All right, well, let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Morgan Spurlock. Welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, so first of all, uh, just how did the idea for this movie come about? Yeah, the the whole concept behind Comic-Con Episode 4, Fans Hope, came from uh, you know, the first visit that I ever paid to, to Comic-Con. Like, I'd wanted to go for years. Like, I'd always wanted to go. I'd seen it in the news, heard people talk about it, and had never, for one reason or the other, been able to actually attend. And then in 2009, I was approached by Fox to to do the Simpsons 20th anniversary special for them. And so the minute I got that phone call from Fox, I was like, we're going to Comic-Con. I was like, we're going to Comic-Con. We're going to go there. We're going to find Simpsons super fans. We're going to have like a, an American Idol casting, and we're going to find these people who love the Simpsons more than anything. And while we were there shooting, I was like, this, this place is, this is like a movie. Like this is a place where we could make a great film just about the characters, the people. And then later on that night, I met Stan Lee for the first time. And uh, I went over to introduce myself to kiss the ring. You know, I was like, Mr. Lee, as a kid growing up in West Virginia, reading your comic books, you know, I just want you to know you changed my life. You, you, you know, your stories kind of encouraged me and, and gave me the, the drive to want to go out and tell my own stories. And he's like, oh, Morgan, thanks. I, I really appreciate that. I, I, you know, wow. I don't even know what to say. It's like, you know what? You know, you know what we should do? We should make a movie together. You know, we should make a documentary. We should make a documentary about Comic-Con. And I was like, that's a great idea, Mr. Lee. Thank you so much. And I literally turned around. And right after I met him, I turned around. This is this is a party for CAA. Like his agency was CAA, and so is mine. This was such this crazy, weird Hollywood moment. I turned around, and Peter Michelli, who's an agent at CAA, was standing right behind me. And he goes, "How was it meeting Stan?" And I was like, "It was amazing. We want to make a movie about Comic Con." And he's like, "That's a great idea. You should meet my client, who's coming into town tomorrow." Cut to tomorrow, as I was having breakfast with Joss Whedon at that at his hotel, told him the whole idea. We want to make a film, follow people into Comic Con, and Joss is like, "I love it. I'm in." So like literally in like 48 hours, we had Joss and Stan on board to make this movie, which, you know, a year later we were shooting. It was crazy. Uh, so would you consider yourself a comic book geek? Uh, uh, I mean, currently, like, I mean, obviously when you were a kid, you were uh, you Yeah, were I, buy, I buy and read probably more comics now uh, than I did as a kid. You know, like, I, I they guess people, that's what they say. They're like, you know, like the comic book business is dying. And I was like, no, the book business is dying. I mean, like, I don't know many people who go out and buy physical, like, paper comic books anymore. But, like, since I got my iPad and, and, and got turned on to Comixology, like, I buy more stuff from Comixology than I, than I ever did as a kid. It's just because it's so much more accessible. I have so much more access to it. Um, you know, so for me, I think that uh, – I mean, I, I think it's, like, so alive and well, and it's, like, reaching, like, just this very different generation. You know, um, I just think that people buying physical paper comics is, isn't, isn't happening. So what are some of your favorites that you're reading right now? Um, you know, Irredeemable. I uh, I loved Irredeemable and Incorruptible, which um, was the you know the amazing Mark Wade series. That's that's probably you know I'm catching up on that because I got behind while we were in in production and shooting on that on that whole series. So I've got like the last batch of that to get through. 
DMZ. I, I like got lost in that series while we were shooting the film, so I'm catching up on the DMZs. And um, yeah, but I mean, those are probably the biggest two. And then I just I tell you what, I just started rereading. Once I heard that they were making it into a, uh, once I heard they were starting to like pr- make production into the film on it, was Why the Last Man, which I started, mm-hmm. started rereading again, which I loved that the first time, and I was just like, um, the idea of them just making that into one movie, I'm so kind of distraught over, but <laughs> uh, but we'll we'll see what happens. Oh uh, yeah, so unlike your previous movies, you you don't appear in this one at all. Uh, Why did you decide to take that route? Comic books are, succeed and have succeeded for decades because of fans, because people who love them. You know, big giant. You know, Hollywood genre movies succeed because of fans. You know, uh, video games have become popular and more popular over the years because of fans. So for me, this is a film that was very much rooted in those people, in their passions, in their desire, their obsessions. And so I really wanted to tell the story through these people that kind of make Comic-Con what it is. And as much as I am a fan, you know, I don't go to Comic-Con every year. The first time I went was to, was for work, you know, and so, so for me, making a movie about me, making a movie about Comic-Con just didn't make sense. I, I mean, it needed to be about these people. And when we first started going out and pitching the film to investors, we were going to investors saying, here's what the film is, here's who we're going to tell the stories about. And they're like, yeah, we love it. This is great. Um, we'll give you the money, but we want you to be in the film. And I was like, well, then we'll find the money somewhere else. We'll find a different investor because that's just not what the movie is. And um, and, and it was the best choice because ultimately, again, it's a movie about those people. And uh, and I tell people, I meet people all the time are like, yeah, I haven't really liked any of your other films. And I'm like, well, then you're going to love this one. You're going to love this movie because I'm not in one frame of the whole thing. Yeah, so how did you go about selecting the people who actually do appear in the movie? You know, we're trying to figure out who are the archetype characters that we want to follow. Who are we going to kind of chase after? And um, it was Stan, I think, who was the first person to suggest, like, you know, focusing on the portfolio review, telling that story, which was a great idea. Joss brought up the masquerade, saying, have you ever seen that? So the costumes these people make are amazing. Um, Harry Knowles was the one who suggested Chuck Rosansky because Harry Knowles' father, um, you know, had a comic book shop. Um, was one of the people who was instrumental in creating the Texas Comic-Con, and so he's known Chuck for years, so he says, oh my gosh, if you want somebody who knows everything there is to know about the comic book business, you got to get Chuck. Um, and then what we did is we kind of created this this kind of casting call that we sent out to comic book shops, that we sent out to fan sites, that we uh, that Harry blasted out through Ain't It Cool News, and we ended up getting about 2,000 submissions from people from all around the world. These were just like emails, videos. Um, a lot of whom were like, "Yeah, get me a ticket, I'll come," which was not what the movie is. You know, we we didn't get any of these people tickets. The only people we wanted to to follow were people who were already coming. Like, if you're already coming, we want to hear your story. What is your story? Tell us, you know, why you know you think you should be a part of the film. And then we just started whittling it down. And Holly Conrad was the very first person that we cast in the film. You know, we got her video, and I was blown away. I think she represented she represented for me kind of the litmus test, you know, the bar that we should kind of be measuring all the rest of our submissions to. And and she's she's amazing. Is she she's the, the designer? She's the costume designer. Yeah, she's yeah. the girl who's preparing for the masquerade, making the costumes from mass effect out of her garage her and her friends you know it's her third masquerade you're only allowed to compete in the masquerade at comic-con three times and then after that you're considered a professional costume designer so this is her this is kind of her swan song as competing as a uh, as an amateur so she really wanted to win like she was really going at it to make sure that she could uh you know give it her all and, and use this as her final calling card to try and break into the into the costume business in hollywood no, her, her costumes were absolutely amazing. All the animatronics that she's doing in her garage. Did you get any yeah. sense of how she was able to, to do that? Uh... Well, she, you know, she'd worked at costume shops and, you know, worked with other designers before. And then some of the, and like her friends, people that are building the stuff with her had also been people who'd worked at like Henson and a couple of the other, like, you know, 
you know, like animatronic places that design stuff for theme parks. So, um, like they are, they are, they are this incredible group of creative friends that, you know, had been doing this for a while that, uh, you know, they just all come together to kind of realize the, like her vision and the, the, this game and, and, uh, these characters. And I mean, it's remarkable. Like they're, they are, they are super talented. Well, and how about the, the soldier too, was definitely not your stereotypical idea of a comic book artist. Uh, how did he get involved? The soldier, yeah. I mean, again, it was one of those people who, you know, Eric sent his his. Uh, he'd heard about the submission. He sent us his um, his video. Said he wanted to go to Comic Con. And what was interesting about Eric was um, he didn't even want to go to Comic Con. And he has a friend on the army base with him who's a professional power lifter. You know, this is a guy who you know goes and tra- he trains and he competes in powerlifting competitions. And years ago. This powerlifter friend of his who was, you know, getting bigger, getting stronger, but would never enter a competition, a friend of his said, you know what, I'm going to – he goes, you just need to do it. You just need to take this chance. So his friend bought him an entry and a plane ticket to a powerlifting competition and sent him, made him go. And so the powerlifter friend said to Eric, he goes, you've been drawing for years. I've seen your stuff. You're amazing. You finally have to do this. And so his friend bought him a ticket and a pass to Comic-Con, bought him a plane ticket and a pass to go. And that's the only reason Eric was going. Like Eric never would have like forced himself to do it had the friend not done it. And so he sent us this video, told this story. You know, we saw his work, and I was just like, the story of Eric with his wife and his kids, and he's in the Air Force. Is I mean, there's just something amazing about him. And the guy's an incredible talent. Um, and uh, and you know, and now since the film has gone on to do multiple covers for like Arch Enemy Comics and a few other a few other places. I mean, the guy's the guy is really talented. Uh, when the movie eventually comes out on DVD, are there going to be are are those uh, videos that the people submitted uh, actually going to be on there as available as extras or? Yeah, they they won't be in the first pass of the DVD because we couldn't find uh, we could only find one or two. Like Holly's is actually online. Like if you do a search on YouTube for Holly Conrad like Comic Con submission video, you'll see her video on the internet. Which by the time she submitted it to us, like she submitted it to me, there were no hits on it. Literally within like the first day, <laughs> it had gone over thousands of hits. Like it was amazing how many people had watched it. What were the logistics like for making this movie? Just how many people were involved, cameras, stuff like that? Yeah, my God, it was it was massive. It was the biggest movie I've ever made, and you know, there's so much to manage. Because how do you capture Comic Con? How do you capture that huge event? Um, and so we were following basically like ten characters into Comic Con. And so we had 15 film crews, one camera for each one of those crews, and an additional five crews that were shooting, you know, panels or signings or uh, just B-roll at any given moment. Within each of those crews, there was a second camera that could either be taken to a different location or used within that shoot. So during the shoot, there was usually anywhere between 15 and 28 cameras that were shooting over the course of the five days of Comic-Con. Uh, there was a crew of 150 people that we that we had working on the film. Um, everything from you know, of course, the sound and and t- camera crews to um, production assistants to to location assistants to like uh, talent scouts, people who were like going around the floor trying to basically find people, publicists publicists that were helping to arrange the interviews that were shooting on the Sykes, you know, gaffers, grips, electrics. I mean, it was it was huge. Data wranglers. I mean, that's things we were shooting. We were shooting about a hundred hours of footage a day, so we're having to wrangle all that footage at the same time that we can also watch every night. So every night when we're done shooting, I would go down with the data wranglers. We would watch, you know, footage from select, you know, cameras. Basically, the ones that were following our characters. We weren't even watching B-roll. We were literally just watching everything that was surrounding all the characters, making sure that whatever key story points there were, the key things that happened that day, we followed up on the next day. We knew what was happening when. I mean, it was it was a massive, massive undertaking. And so you ended up with like something like 300 hours then of footage? We total? ended up with like 600 hours, okay. like about 650 hours over the course of the week. 
So what was it like trying to cut that down to an hour and a half? Was, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, there was a lot. I mean, we started off with, um, you know, we basically you start separating things into kind of pods when you do that. So first off, you edit each character's story as kind of, kind of its own little short film, you know, beginning, middle, and end of each character. You know, starting off at their home, here they are at the con, then they go home, beginning, middle, end of everybody's kind of journey along the way. Um, then you take, then we go through all the celebrity interviews, like the, the directors, the actors, the comic book creators, the people who work for, for the dark horses of the world. We start going through there and mining for the best sound bites that kind of deal with different types of story points um, along the way, whether it's about Comic-Con itself, it's about fans, it's about uh, the future, you know, you start breaking them into categories. Same thing with the fans. We do the same thing about, you know, with, with all of their psych footage. And then you put all the B-roll in a bin, you know, where all the B-roll shots, you know, daytime, nighttime, transitional um, character shots, panel shots, all that stuff that we'll start to fill in. And then you start to weave it together with your editors. And we had an amazing editorial team. You know, just like you make a longer cut that's like three hours, you whittle that down to about two and a half, then you whittle that down to two, and then we just start knocking it down to, you know, 150, 145, you know, until we, we got around where we are, which we're living at about an hour and a half movie. Do you want to maybe mention just some of those uh, celebrity interviews that you did? You know, Stanley and Joss Whedon were in the film, um, you know, because these guys are very much quintessential. Or I, I think the quintessential idea of who is at Comic-Con, they are like the old and new guard of that place. Then you, you have folks like Guillermo del Toro, Kevin Smith, Seth Rogen, Olivia Wilde, Seth Green, Mac Fraction, um, Joe Quesada. Um, oh, my gosh, the list goes on and on. It's, um, I mean, it was huge. I think we interviewed you know, 80 people, you know, 85 people over the course of that. And that's just, you know, people who work from, you know, in the comic book world, Kenneth Brana, you know, we interviewed uh, as he was there, you know, launching Thor at the time. So did, did you have a sort of a standard set of questions you asked them all or like, how did that work? Yeah, I mean, we asked them all about what do they, you know, why do they come here? What do they think of it? What was their first experience like? You know, what's the craziest thing they ever saw? You know, Eli Roth talks about how the first time he ever took a pee next to a stormtrooper and a Klingon, you know, you're in the, that's something you can only, you'd only ever see at Comic-Con. Um, you know, there's something, uh, you know, there's something really, there's something amazing, you know, about a lot of these stories that came out. And that's the thing is all these interviews, that's, you're talking about the DVD, is each interview with each one of these people when you watch the film, you know, is like 20 minutes long. Kevin Smith's interview is like, I think even longer. He might have, we might have even talked to him for like a half an hour, which you then cut down to ultimately being about a minute of the movie, sometimes less. And, you know, so the, there's all of this great footage that also will be expanded into the DVD because it's just, it's, it's amazing. So, I mean, you know, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Trekkies, but that was has gotten a lot of criticism for sort of coming across as mean-spirited towards Star Trek fans. Yeah. Um, was that yeah. something that sort of concerned you, making this movie, how to kind of walk well, that line? Well, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I wanted to make sure what, – what Trekkies didn't do, which I think this film does a really good job of, is humanizing everybody that's in the movie. You know, it's like we could have we could have kind of done these asides with people and like, oh, here's Skip Harvey, and look, oh, look, there's his pillow shaped like Superman – but, you know, what we wanted to make sure was that you understood why, the why behind their passion. Why does it matter to them? What drives them? Why do they care? And by doing that, you really start to get invested in them and their stories, you know, and I think that you, you, you care what happens to Skip. You know, you want Skip to succeed. You want Eric to succeed because you've seen him with his family and talking about why he loves comics so much. You want James Darling and Say Young, like the couple who he's going to propose to his girlfriend during the Kevin Smith panel. Like you, you're, you're riding along with him. You're nervous with him. You know, you're nervous with Holly as she's competing in the masquerade, you know, to see if she's going to win. Because, you know, by, by giving you entree to these people where you kind of see them as real people, 
suddenly you you are passionate about their stories and you are going on this vicarious journey with them and you are there with the ebb and flow of emotion and I think that makes a big big difference and Trekkies didn't really do that all of the people within our movie there's there's the other thing that starts to set up our film differently is it's not just people as as like as like oh look and I'm a weirdo and look at where I sleep you know and I feel like that what we do with our with this film is everybody in this movie has a purpose you know that uh, that Anthony Calderon, who has a room filled with toys, he's a toy collector. He makes his own toys. You know, like if we had just left it at him with his toy collection, that's one thing. But he's on a mission when he goes to Comic Con to get an 18-inch Galactus. He's so passionate about it. Like the guy can't. Like he he is not leaving without that action figure. And even even somebody like an Anthony, who he's got a wife and his kid. His wife doesn't really understand his collecting, but it's his thing. You see the passion behind him as he goes on this mission to get that one last toy, and you kind you care. You know, you actually care that he's there and chasing after it because you see how incredibly, you know, one, you see that he's actual, you know, somebody who has a, has a, he's grounded in reality with his family, but at the same time, he's somebody who just has real passion. And I think that with all the characters in the film, they have a goal. Chuck, you know, as here he is trying to make a certain amount of money to keep, you know, his company open, Mile High Comics. He wants to make sure it's going to run. He wants to make sure people can have comics forever. He wants to make sure they're going to be able to experience them like he experienced them. Like that's something you're rooting for. You're rooting for that guy. And, uh, and I think the more that you can really give people a purpose, again, that makes them real. And they're not just like they're not just like spectacle. I actually noticed with both the the, collect, the the toy collector and the the comic book dealer that they both seem to have spouses who weren't one hundred percent on board with the with their. <laughs> I mean, is that is it, is that something you saw a lot? There's pl- there's plenty of women at Comic Con. There's plenty of women that you know are supportive of their boyfriends. You know, and look, there was there were couples that were on there. I love the couple that like, yeah, we're on our honeymoon at Comic Con. This is what we both love. I mean, there's plenty of people that love it and embrace it. And I mean, you got to think that she she embraces it. She gave it. She may not like. She may not understand why he likes to collect toys. But the guy still has a room in their house called of the Room of Doom that's covered in toys that he makes his own action figures in. So she's she's incredibly understanding because she's basically let him take over a whole room of the house to put his toys in. Um, um, and I think that you know Chuck's wife, while she may not agree with his, some of his business choices, again she's supportive. She she is she's behind him. She goes, you know what? I may not I may not get it, but you know I love you, and if this is a part of you, then then I love it all. Did you ever have you ever encountered a couple where the the wife is really into comics and the husband just kind of humors her or? Um, I'm trying. The thing is now this that's starting. You're starting to see more of that, but it's not just. And but I don't really think it's comics. I think that it's like there's a huge female gamer culture right now. Like there's a massive female gaming culture, and so you know Holly, I think is very representative of that. Holly and her friends. You know, Holly said something to me while we were filming with her, which I thought was pretty great. She said, "You got to understand, like Mass Effect is to me, and to, is it to, is to my generation what Star Wars was to you. Like these games." are our trilogies like these are the movies that are kind of these are the games that are kind of shaping us just like those movies shaped you as a kid and um and i think that what you're seeing now is this generation of of gamer girls like her who are incredibly good and gifted at all of these games and and are really inspired by them and even more so than i think some of the guys that you know that they're with but i think that's that was something that we saw we did see a lot of kind of gamer girls who are you know while they while their boyfriends may be into something else they may not be gamers so do you think the creators of Mass Effect will ever uh, make a prequel series that will retroactively taint the entire product? <laughs> yeah, and, and instead of like instead of putting animated characters in it, they're actually going to put live action characters in it. And we're going to go, I can't believe they put live action characters in it. <laughs>
Uh, I mean, one thing uh, that's presented in the film is is sort of this idea that the actual comic book creators and dealers are starting to feel marginalized at Comic-Con. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I think that it's the reality of the business. I mean, I feel like if you if you sell comic books, you're selling a business that is basically folding all around you. You know, um, people don't buy books. People aren't buying books. You know, people aren't buying these things as much as they used to. Um, people are still buying and reading comics, but I just don't think they're buying physical paper comics. You know, I'd be curious to know how many kids are actually like, you know, collecting comics. You know, think about that. You know, it's like I, I had a closet full as a kid, you know, kept them way up into my adulthood, um, as did a lot of friends of mine. But how many – how is any of that getting passed down? And I can't imagine that it is unless like your father's like a super dedicated or mom is a super dedicated collector. Um, it's just something that's kind of – I feel like it's kind of passed. It, 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 books in general, you know, they're they're kind of going the way of the dodo. So, I mean, I think they're feeling marginalized simply just because that whole side of a publishing business is vanishing. Well, but although in, in the movie, I mean, Chuck is Chuck, the the dealer is, is really concerned the whole movie, but it all sort of turns out OK in the end. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, Chuck, Chuck makes his money. I mean, he's at a place where there's still plenty of people that go there and buy books. I mean, I have yet to go to a Comic-Con and not leave with some sort of a book because there's always something that you want to buy that you pick up a book and you're like, wow, this is pretty amazing. Um, you know, whether it may be some guy, somebody who made like some sort of a limited edition graphic novel or whatever, but. I mean, I always buy something, and yeah. So at the end of the day, he made enough money to to cover the whole trip to Comic Con. They made a big profit, you know. So everything was good. Um, and Chuck's one of those people who Chuck will Chuck is like a cat. Like he will always land on his feet. He will always find a way. Um, you know what's happened kind of since the film is he has sold uh, some of his big high dollar comics. You know to continue to pay off some corporate debt to keep to expand the company. He's bought like a couple million more comics. I mean I already bought like another gigantic collection of comics from somebody. It's amazing. How did he uh, end up with all those comics in the first? Like, how did he end up? How did he end well, up with the, a warehouse of comics in the first place? Well, he was one of the very first people. Like, the story of Chuck is interesting. Like, he was the very first like comic book millionaire. Like, he bought this collection of comics that it's a, it's a really famous collection of comics. I can't remember the guy's name who had it, but it had literally all of these old action comics, like the original Superman, all these comics that he bought and then was able to like resell. That basically made you know millions of dollars. And so he was this – he was like the poster child for the comic book millionaire, the guy who basically bought these books, turned them around, and made a huge profit. And then out of that, he just started buying more comics and turned that into a real legitimate business. And he did that. Like I think he, he became the first comic book millionaire I think either in – at like 19 or 20. Like he was really young. And then basically from there just like took off and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep you know, kind of being this intermediary for what I love, which is comic books. Uh, so you made a whole documentary, uh, The Greatest Movie Ever Sold, about the influence of uh, advertising in the mass media. How, how do you think that affects the comic book industry in particular? You know, the thing about co- the comic book industry is it's uh, – unless you are it's – a, it's a very niche business still of comic books. And I think that um, if you're somebody who's not into, like, comic books, you're not going to get advertised to or want to buy a comic book. I think that that's just something you have to kind of be – has to be kind of part of your upbringing, part of your grown – or your kid DNA that kind of even infects you as an adult. Um yeah, I think that you know, for me, it's if they had more advertising or more marketing, you know, would more people read? Do big movies? Will like the Avengers make more people want to read an Avengers comic? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a that's something I would love to have an answer to. I'd love to know that. Are you bothered sort of by the product placement and stuff in those those superhero movies? Uh-huh. 
Um, well, it depends on what it is. Like if there's, in movies like Iron Man, like the last Iron Man, where it's like every other scene, there was product placement. You know, there's like the the new the new James Bond film that they're making right now, which a third of that movie, 150 million dollar budget, 50 million dollars of that movie came from product placement. So I'm just I'm dying to see what that film looks like. Yeah, I mean, at times it can be very, very distracting. I mean, I understand the reasoning behind it, you know, especially after making greatest movies, you start to get an understanding of how, you know, all of these studios want to offset some of their risk and some of this gigantic investment they're making. You know, if you're making a $200 million movie and somebody says, listen, we'll give you $40 million if we can, you know, have a scene in the movie where you blow up a 7-Eleven and put those, I'll put all those <laughs> cups in our stores, you know, then you, you start to see why they want to do it. You know, I don't have a problem usually when certain things exist in the stores when they literally turn them into commercials. You know, you live in the real world. People do wear jeans. They drink Coke. You, they drive Camaros. It's like literally when the scene feels like and turns into a commercial for said product to make me – or that literally takes me out of the narrative in a second. Like in Iron Man 2, what were some of the most egregious ones? Oh, like what was the um? Well, there was the well, it was, it was the, the first one or second one was the whole Burger King the Whopper scene. It was the second one where he's like, well, the second one was where he's walking out of like the he's walking out of the um, uh, where was it at the at the uh, at the fair or at the the grounds where he's walking out eating the Whopper there. And then the first one, the first one, he's eating like the Burger King sitting at the podium as he comes back. The second one, he's doing it again as he comes walking out and he does and he does that. He drives. That's what, like right where Stanley's cameo is, right where he walks by him and he's walking out eating a big like eating a Whopper right there or something. I mean, it's just things like that just drive me crazy. I mean, you mentioned that the movie to the characters you follow is, is that this guy and his girlfriend and the guy is planning to propose to his girlfriend at the convention. Yeah. I found those scenes just like so awkward uh, and, ten you know, uh, I was like grimacing and uh, squirming through <laughs> like so, mu so much of just what happens. I was just wondering, like, did the film crew, did you have any trouble like not reacting, you know, knowing how high the stakes were and not giving away what was going on and stuff like that? I mean, it's one of those things when you're in it, it's just, you know, you're there you're 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 basically doing everything you can just to make sure the train stays like the 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 you know that the train stays on the rails at that moment like you don't want to give anything away you never want to talk about it we never would talk about anything anywhere near or around say young you know but that was the hard part is a lot of the movies like he couldn't even get away from her to go get the ring like he was trying he was trying to go get the wedding ring and she wouldn't even let him go he's like i got to go to the bathroom she's like i'll wait outside <laughs> you know <laughs> the guy he was he was freaking out and uh and then literally it was like like hours before he was able to get the ring i mean it was amazing uh, so was there any material that you filmed that you that didn't make it into the movie that you think is uh, worth mentioning Oh, I mean, there's so much stuff we shot. I mean, there's so many interviews with people that didn't even make it in, like um, Felicia Day, who I love Felicia Day. Like the uh, the interview with her as we tried to cut into different places just, you know, didn't fit with the other interviews that we had. Um, Nathan Cillian, who was in the final cut up until like the mm -hmm. – up until our – like right before the premiere at, at – um, at Toronto last year, which we took him right out of the opening. And what he said, he had, he's a, has an amazing line. His interview said there's so many good things, but his, the one line that we took out was where he says, he goes, he goes, Comic-Con is like a giant orgasm. He goes, it's like you prepare the whole year. Like the whole year is just the buildup, and then Comic-Con is the release. <laughs> it was it was such a good line, and and we had tons of those. We had tons of great moments and interviews with people, and um, Jerry Robinson, you know, which was uh, you know such a bittersweet interview with him. He created the Joker, just passed away last year. Um, there's just there was great stuff that we had, and and I think that uh, you know when we start figuring out you know the best way to put this out on DVD or you know and an expanded Blu-ray DVD, there's just there's it's just gonna be a wealth of riches.
So you think you might release like a 600 hour extended edition? <laughs> if anybody would buy it, absolutely. <laughs> hey, if there's if there's one fan base that would buy something, like that, you know, it's comic book, it's comic book fans, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay, so uh, are there any other documentaries that you think fantasy and science fiction fans should check out? I mean, I don't know. It's like I, I love Darkon. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie. It's fantastic, which is – there's this great film about like uh, about all these guys who do live-action role-playing, and it's this amazing documentary that I think is just genius. I love that film. You know, we talked about Trekkies, which I still like Trekkies, you know, because I, I think just uh, – you know, I love I love the characters that are in that film. There's, there's, so there's an offshoot of this. Like there's there's docs that I talk about all the time. Like there's gateway docs. Like I love to clue people into gateway docs. Like if they haven't seen certain movies, like they're like, oh, docs are boring. I don't like to watch those. Um, you know, movies like Heavy Metal Parking Lot, Hands on a Hard Body, um, American Movie. Uh, like these are great docs that people should watch. Like if you like great, funny documentaries, like those are just great docs that people should check out because they're really smart. They're really fun. Like they, they play more like comedies than they do docs. You know, King of Kong, one of the greatest documentaries ever made. You know, like I, there's just so many films like that that I think people uh, people should get into. And and then people who like sci-fi, like A Brief History of Time, the Errol Morris doc, the one that's uh, the one that has um, Stephen Hawking in it, is an amazing film. Like that's that's like the the uber uber end all of sci-fi. That that doc. Uh, so you know, one location featured in the movie is a geek theme bar uh, that the character of the geek works at. Uh, yeah, in, where, in Columbia, where... in Columbia, Missouri. So, I mean, like, uh, what kind of geeky stuff do they have in there? Well, they've got drinks, like, on, on Geek Night, where they have, uh, you know, they people can come there and play video games or, or like, Magic the Gathering or whatever, any of the card games that they play, that... Uh, they have like they have like geek themed drinks, you know. So they're named after characters that are in Star Trek or Battlestar, Battlestar Galactica, or um, you know, or like Star Wars. They have all kinds of like different like character drink names, like a Boba Fett or uh, or a Greedo, which it's it's awesome. And then Skip and Skip still bartends on Geek Night. So if you find yourself in Columbia, Missouri on a Monday, you have to go to his bar for for Geek Night. Is that the only geek themed bar you know of? Or I mean, are there others anywhere? Um, I mean, it's the only one that I know of, and it's not every day, so it's not geek-themed every day. It's just, I think mm. it's just one night a week it's geek-themed. Mm. We'll have to work on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think the, I think the, there's a, there's a Giger bar, like the, wherever that HR Giger bar is, I think it's in Switzerland or Germany, which, um, I think that's probably about it. That's probably like the most great twisted probably geek bar I could think of where like all the furniture, you know, looks like everything that's straight out of the movie Alien. And so you go in there and the entire bar feels like you're in the movie of an alien set. Like he designed this entire creepy bar, which is fantastic. So like that's – I think in terms of like a – like if you want to feel like you're in the middle of like a Cronenberg film <laughs> as, well as, as well as like, you know, a, a Giger painting, like that's, that's probably about as geeky as it gets. Yeah, you know, I've always had this dream of actually having a geek-type bar like called Geektopia. Uh, but uh, the problem is that I don't want to. I don't want to operate and run it. I just want to go to it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I just. I just want to drink in it. Can I do that? I just want to stop by. Uh, yeah. So, are there any updates that you want to give us about the characters featured in the film, like what they're up to currently? Um, well, the amazing thing, like Holly Conrad, who's in the film, 
you know, uh, she was basically hired as a as a wardrobe consultant for the Mass Effect film, which uh, they're apparently doing a rewrite on that script now. So hopefully she will be uh, engaged in that full time. She continues to make costumes. She was hired after the after the scene you see in the film where she made these Mass Effect costumes. She was hired by BioWare, the company that makes Mass Effect, to make costumes for uh, Mass Effect One and Two, as well as like create costumes for the launch of Mass Effect Three, which was pretty amazing. Um, James Darling and Say Young, you know, they they did get married, uh, so they are they are uh, you know happily married and and working in like he's working in film and she's getting ready to go back to uh, to to graduate school. Did did Kevin um, Smith uh, was he involved in Kevin their wedding? Smith did, Kevin Smith did not officiate their wedding. They did ask, but he was unavailable apparently. Uh, uh, Eric Hansen has gone on to you know do multiple covers for for comic books, you know, post the post the the film, which is amazing. Um, and Skip is still working on his own, you know, graphic novel. Probably the biggest story that's happened since then is like Chuck has sold some of his big high dollar comics. Like I think that's probably the bigger story that isn't isn't talked about in the movie. Uh, so like like Eric, I actually I, I was really intrigued by Eric's work. Is there like a, a website or something like I could find out? I don't I don't think he has a website yet. I'm going to see him at the premiere because he's stationed in Germany right now. He's still in the Air Force, and um, so he's coming to the premiere in Los Angeles, which is April 4th. And uh, when he comes, I just want to ask him, you know, if has he has he started to put up a website? Where is he putting his work right now? I, I mean, I think that he was dealing exclusively with Arch Enemy for a while, but now he's working with other folks. I'm curious if he's had anybody kind of help him establish himself on a on a greater level. Okay, and, and finally, just are there any other uh, recent or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Um, yeah, probably the the next thing that's going to be coming out for me is uh, I've got a film that I'm finishing right now. It's going to premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival on April 21st. It's a movie that we made with uh, Will Arnett and Jason Bateman, and it looks at the uh, magical world of male grooming. It's called Mansum. <laughs> Well, what, what is what, what does that mean? Like, what is the magical world of male grooming? Well, you know, it's like uh, you know, I am one of the many people who uh, you know, I personally have been involved in male grooming for like the last eight years as I've shaved around a ridiculous mustache on my face. So uh, me, along with other people who, uh, you know, deal with lots of like, you know, body shaving, who deal with like these guys who get plastic surgery. There's guys who, you know, deal with other types of uh, perfection, I guess, if they will, in their own grooming day, people who take hours to get ready before they go outside. I, you know, I've got two words for you for a product you'll see in the film which is a spectacular product and that product's name is fresh balls <laughs> and the name pretty much says it all <laughs> so this is like the main entail of your new movie like <laughs> I, I would i would say it is even i would even i'd say it's more it's like like the the tail and tail <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right great so uh, morgan spurlock thanks so much for joining us on geek's guide to the galaxy well, awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Morgan Spurlock for joining us on the show. And for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about science fiction conventions, and we're joined by a special guest geek, Chris Savasco. From 2003 to 2009, he was the editor of Paradox Magazine, which published both historical fiction and speculative fiction with a period setting. His short fiction has appeared in Black Static, Leading Edge, and The Field Guide to Surreal Botany. He's also written an alternate history novel about 1066 and a historical thriller dealing with Lady Godiva, both of which he's currently shopping around to agents. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. And so I think, I think sort of to start out with, I just want to talk about sort of introduce people to science fiction conventions who have never been to one before and just give them an idea of 
kind of what they're like and why they might want to go. Because I think a lot of people read science fiction and never really go to conventions or think about it. And certainly that's how it was for me. You know, when I was a teenager, I used to read Asimov's magazine and in the back of every issue, there would be the convention listing where it would just be this big list of, you know, names of conventions and cities and dates and stuff. And I would just kind of flip past that and it would never really register. I would just, I don't know, I sort of imagined like, if this was something I should be going to, someone would have mentioned it to me or, you know, I would, you know, it doesn't really ex ever explain what exactly it is or, or why you might want to go to that. So, yeah. So, I mean, what was that kind of your, how did you guys sort of first hear about conventions and uh, kind of how did you start going to them? You know, uh, I mean, I only, I first, uh, you know, like really encountered conventions just in a professional setting. You know, I got the job at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and, uh, you know, my boss Gordon uh, decided that he was going to go to some convention or other. I think it was, I think it was just Worldcon because Worldcon is the first one I went to. But yeah, I mean, uh, I I had never, I'd never considered going to one. Uh, I wasn't even really aware that they were there. I mean, I had heard of Star Trek conventions and I had heard of Dragon Con because I, you know, I was a D and D player. Um, but like the other conventions that uh, that we tend to go to now, um, you know, in our community, uh, like you know, Worldcon and World Fantasy and and like stuff like and regional cons like ReaderCon or WizCon and like. Um, you know, I didn't even know those existed. Um, and of course I knew, I knew about the Hugo Awards, but I, I didn't, I didn't know that Worldcon was a, was a big convention where they presented those. But, uh, you know, obviously I've become a bit of a convention junkie. I go to several every year. And I mean, it's uh, sort of somewhat, uh, somewhat necessary, uh, to, to sort of network in the community and, and, and interact with your fans and whatnot. And so, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a thing, uh, science fiction and fantasy professionals sort of do to promote their work and whatnot. And so it's sort of required to some extent, but I mean, I actually legitimately enjoy going to them. My experience pretty much mirrors both of yours. I, you know, I, I was reading heavily in the science fiction and fantasy field, you know, as a teenager in the eighties, but I had absolutely no awareness of the conventions other than even with, you know, Star Trek conventions, my only awareness of that was, you know, seeing it spoofed on Saturday night live and what, whatnot. Like I didn't really know what that was about. I was also totally unaware of the uh, the short fiction magazines like Asimov's and whatnot, I guess mostly because my local bookstores didn't carry them. It wasn't until around, um, I guess around 2000 or 2001, when I started going, uh, I was living in New York City at the time, and I started going to the KGB readings and hearing people there talking about conventions. And a couple years after that, when I launched Paradox Magazine was the first time that I actually sort of got my act together to try and check out one of the conventions, mostly at the time, like John said, you know, also for professional reasons, just to kind of promote the magazine at the time. But, uh, you know, very quickly, I, I sort of became a, a convention junkie too. I mean, since then, I, I, you know, not a year has gone by that I haven't gone to at least, I would say, three conventions. So what was the first one you went to? It was actually World Fantasy, which I guess is kind of a cool one to go to because it to this day remains uh, one of my uh, top favorite conventions to go to. Um, it was uh, in Washington, D.C. at the time. It's kind of interesting thinking back on it now because, you know, when I go to conventions now, such a big part of it is, you know, kind of getting to hang out with my posse, you know, you guys and, and the wider posse that, you know, we all kind of meet up at these things. And at the time, you know, I hadn't met you yet. I really didn't know too many people in the field at all. Um, and I kind of just went to it cold, you know, just showed up, <laughs> you know, walked in not knowing anything about it or what to expect or even having any sort of uh, wingman or, or, or anyone with me to 
kind of negotiate it. But, you know, people really made me feel welcome right away. And it was just a whole lot of fun. And I was certainly as well as there to, you know, promote things professionally. I was also in indefinite fanboy mode. I remember at that first convention, just sitting in awe at a, at a reading that Stephen R. Donaldson was giving, you know, Mm -hmm. one of my, one of my major uh, influences growing up, you know, reading as a teenager. Well, actually, you know, speaking of Stephen R. Donaldson, you know, the first convention I went to was actually uh, the International Conference on the Fantastica in the Arts, shortened to ICFA, uh, which is in Florida every year. And, you know, I went to that because I won the Asimov Award, uh, which has since been renamed the Dell Award, but it's an award for um, undergraduate science fiction. And so if you win, they fly you to this convention. And so that was, you know, that was the first thing I'd ever been to. And I think the first night, I was, you know, you, you know, and it's at this hotel and it's in Florida, so it's really nice weather and everything. It's sort of around spring break time. And uh, I was just, you know, everyone's out of the pool and sitting around the pool and in the hot tub and stuff. And I was just sitting in the hot tub and all these writers were passing around this bottle of Jim Beam. <laughs> and uh, and the guy sitting next to me was like, hey, what's your name? And I'm like, oh, I'm David. And he's like, hi, I'm Steve. Nice to meet you. Hmm. And then like the next day I, I realized like, whoa, that was Stephen R. Donaldson. Holy crap. You know, and when you're like 19, you know, you're a 19 year old aspiring science fiction writer hanging out in the hot tub with Stephen R. Donaldson and all these other people. I mean, that's just like, (laughs) that's pretty mind blowing, you know? Well, yeah, I guess we should just sort of say like what basically it's like going to a convention, right? So you, you buy a membership ahead of time and then you show up at a hotel. Usually if it's a big one, like Worldcon, you know, it's also at a convention center, but usually you're, you're talking about one hotel. And you show up and you give them your name and they give you a name badge and a schedule and stuff. And in various rooms around the hotel, there will be panels going on. And what well, there's usually a dealer's room where you can buy books. There's filking, which is, you know, people, it's sort of folk music about fantasy and science fiction characters and themes and stuff. Although even that will vary from convention to convention. I mean, you know, you'll get that at a Lunacon, but not necessarily at a World Fantasy. I think World Fantasy might actually ban it. World Fantasy has a lot of rules. It's, it tends to be more of a professional sort of con, although fans are, 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 are welcome to attend. Uh, but, I mean, they cap the membership to keep it a little smaller. Um, but they, you know, it's actually uh, usually over Halloween weekend. Sometimes it misses Halloween itself, but it's always right around then. So it's frequently actually on like Halloween occurs during the convention, but they ban you from wearing costumes. So it's just kind of funny, you know, and, uh, you know, because I, I, you know, that's part of what them being trying to be professional. Cause like, you know, you go to something like Worldcon, you know, sometimes people dress up like a Klingon or, you know, whatever. Um, and I went to a Balticon, which is in Baltimore one time, and there was a lot of people dressed up there and that, that varies a lot from con to con as well. But I mean, I think, you know, in, in the, popular imagination you imagine going to a convention like everyone's dressed up as a Klingon and that's not what it's like at all I mean um you know most people are just dressed you know in in normal street clothes I mean there are you know a lot of a lot of people like uh like the women will sometimes wear um uh corsets and sort Mm -hmm. of um renaissance more renaissance-y kinds of gowns and stuff like that although like at Worldcon I mean they have actually actually a masquerade ball where you know you show off your costumes and they have um you know, sort of a dance and a sort of um, costume competition and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Balticon is the only one that really comes to mind for me that, uh, of the of the smaller conventions, the regional ones that where I remember, uh, you know, a lot of people dressed up. But 
um yeah for the most part it's it's pretty uh pretty sedate as far as that goes but yeah i mean in, in addition to the panels and stuff like dave was saying uh like also they the most conventions have a lot of readings by authors so um you know it'll be the author reading either a short story they wrote or an excerpt of their novel and stuff like that I think it's a fun way to sort of uh, discover some new writers and stuff. Like if you go just pop into a reading, like somebody you met who you, you just, like you meet somebody randomly at the con and they turn and they seem to be cool. Like, so you just go and check out their reading and then, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a fun way to sort of expand your horizons within the genre. That's kind of how Dave and I met at Lunacon. We each went to each other's reading that, at that first uh, Lunacon that we met we were each the only one to show up to each other's readings. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, and it's funny too, how, you know, there are, there are particular authors who are bestsellers in the wider world, but aren't that popular. If you go to their reading at a convention and there are some authors who aren't that, who don't sell that well in the wider world, but are super, super popular uh, at, at particular conventions and stuff. I mean, there's actually one year I was at world fantasy, as at world fantasy con and, and there they had this, like, um, in the dealer's room, they had every author do a signing all at the same time. And so I, so I went to that room, and there was just this huge line. And so I just, you know, I figured that was the line to get into the event. And so I just get in the line. And this woman comes up to me after a couple of minutes, and she's like, are you here? Are you having stuff signed by Charles DeWin? Hmm. And I was like, that's kind of a random question. I'm like, no. And she's like, oh, you can just go in. And then this is just the line for Charles DeWin. And like every, you know, every author, basically, you could just walk up to them and have something signed. But there was this huge line for Charles DeWin. Actually, I, I have a uh, I have a story about uh, about world fantasy and the and the mass signing. Um, but so I had a I had a dream one time where I, I met Neil Gaiman at a convention and he was doing a reading or something. And I and I went up to say hello to him, you know, because I've like worked with him. But, uh, you know, but I've never met him. So he doesn't say anything to me. He just hands me five gold doubloons. I don't know. That's all I remember about the dream. So I woke up and I and I told my wife about it. And, you know, she's also a big Neil Gaiman fan. So it was like, you know, I thought it was funny. You know, and uh, so, you know, I sort of forgot about it. And then, uh, so come World Fantasy uh, last year, uh, Neil Gaiman was guest of honor. So, you know, uh, my wife actually set up this elaborate conspiracy for me to meet Neil Gaiman. And uh, so at one point we're at the signing and she just drags me over. She, she like drags me away from my table. She's like, come with me. And, and I see we're walking towards Neil's table and I'm like, you know, am I about to meet Neil Gaiman? And, and she's like, just come on. And so she brings me over there and we're there with, uh, with one of Neil's clarion students, Kat Howard, who's also an author I published, but you know, like uh, she and Neil are friends. And so, you know, she, I see that, oh, okay, well, obviously Kat set up this meeting and, but so Christy and I go over there and we're standing next to his table and he's got like, you know, he's got one of those lines that are wrapped around the, you know, the hotel. He's signing, he's signing the book. Um, and then he sort of pauses and he points at me and he just like, you know, does a little come here gesture. So I sort of lean in and, and, and he just reaches into like a pocket and hands me five gold doubloons. Uh, it doesn't say anything. He just goes back to signing. <laughs> and uh, so, so I just like look at my wife and I'm like, what just happened? You know? And so, I've, you know, that's obviously, uh, you know, became clear that she and Kat Howard had set up this elaborate thing to, you know, to get Neil to do this. And uh, so that was pretty awesome. That That's cool that you had that kind of experience. I'm, I've often found that like, it's really sort of awkward meeting my favorite writers. Cause you know, especially when you're new, you, you get into a conversation with them and I just don't know what to say. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, you can ask them questions, but most of them I've, you know, been stalking them my whole life. I basically <laughs> know everything there is to know about them anyway. 
Um, it was, you know, actually one, uh, one, I think it was a world con I went to, there was a panel with sort of like how to survive your first con or something. And, um, and Robert Silverberg was on it. And of course he's been to like every convention, you know, so he had a lot of good advice, but one of his pieces of advice was that you sort of imagine that you're going to go as a new writer and just be hanging out with all your favorite mm -hmm. writers and become like the best friends with them and stuff. And, and he's like, well, you know, you have to, what you have to understand that was like all these big name writers have been going to these things for decades and they have, they're friends with everybody already. And when they come to a convention, you know, they want to meet their agent and meet their editor and, you know, hang out with their friends and, and stuff. And that you're probably more likely to make friends with other new writers. You know, in a way though, it is, you know, the, a, sto a story that I have is, is I, you know, like most people, I think who were growing up in the eighties, um, you know, as a teenager, I was a, a big fan of Piers Anthony's work. And Piers Anthony is sort of notorious for never going to conventions. And I, I remember, you know, just reading some random thing somewhere back in around 2006 that he was going to be appearing at a, a smallish convention in Florida called OasisCon. And it was like the first time in a decade he'd been to a convention and, you know, probably won't go to one for another 10 or 15 years. And so I just on a whim thought, you know, I, I never would have gone down to OasisCon because I was in Florida. I was living in New York at the time, but um, I wanted to go just on the chance of, you know, getting to meet Piers Anthony. And so I went and, you know, first night there, I find myself in, in the convention suite sitting around a, a coffee table eating soggy potato chips with, with Piers Anthony and, <laughs> and his daughter and like one other person. And we were just hanging out there for like an hour. But I'm trying to think like what other advice people give you. I mean, like one, one thing with the conventions is that, you know, there's all these people who share your interests and stuff. And there's just this tendency to not get any sleep and not eat and stuff. And, and so there's this rule that you're supposed to get at minimum what you're supposed to bathe once a day, eat at least two meals and get at least three hours of sleep or something. I think that's and... in life, not just at conventions. <laughs> <laughs> well, in regular life, I hope you'd get more, more sleep than that, at least. Right, right. I don't know if I had a, a piece of advice for someone, you know, sort of new to the convention scene. I, I, you know, this is a, not a mistake, but, but something that I did that I'm sure a lot of people would do is, you know, you, you show up to your first one or two conventions, you know, kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed thinking like, you know, you've, you, you've written down, uh, you know, a very detailed schedule of the 32 different panels you're planning to attend and the, you know, 16 readings and all these different things that, mm -hmm. that look really cool on, on the schedule. And they all, generally are but at the same time you know you very quickly realize number one it's not it's not realistic to actually think that you're going to be running around like that the whole day going to every single thing and also more importantly you, you very quickly come to realize that some of the best parts of conventions are the parts that happen in between the scheduled programming or after the scheduled programming is over when it's more sort of just an informal setting where you're you're just hanging out um, with old friends and new friends and and uh, kind of chatting about the genre and chatting about the field and um, you know that's when you could you know whether you're there as just sort of a fan who enjoys talking about this stuff or you're there professionally and you're kind of um, schmoozing and 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 making connections that way I mean that's in some ways really what the heart of of most conventions are I think and and that's something that it sometimes takes a couple of conventions before you, you come to realize that. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely found that the more veteran somebody is at conventions, the less they tend to actually go to the, any of the programming. 
There's a, there's a funny thing. Sometimes people will say I'm attending BarCon, which is where they didn't actually buy a membership. They just show up at the hotel where the convention's going on and just hang out in the bar, hanging out with people. And that's kind of frowned on because then you're not supporting the right. convention. But you know, sometimes if people are uh, you know short on cash or something, they they might do that. Yeah, and actually, you know, speaking of supporting the convention, it actually like if you do go to one, it actually is really important to support the convention because um, these things are all run by fans. And so even something like big, like Worldcon, I mean, you know, relatively big, I mean, at least, you know, 5,000 people, um, you know, that's all staffed by volunteers. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's important to support the convention, you know, with your membership and also, uh, you know, to, to keep in mind uh, when things go wrong that, you know, yeah, these people are, these people are, uh, you know, they're fans who have full-time jobs and they're, you know, taking, they're devoting a bunch of their time to throw this convention. Do, do, yeah. do you have, do you guys have any tips for like, if you're a panelist, how you should comport yourself yeah i mean i think just be prepared and uh you know be respectful and although i would say uh <laughs> you know you, you do have to be prepared to um jump in when there's a moment's opportunity because it's like you you can very easily get shut out of talking at a panel at all uh because there's a lot a, a lot of people um you know they don't they, they don't want to give up the floor well, yeah, I mean, theoretically, all these panels are supposed to be a moderator who's supposed yeah. to sort of make sure yeah. everyone gets a chance to talk, but they often don't do a particularly good job. And and like if it's what can be just deadly is if the moderator themselves is a windbag and just goes on and on. And then there's really no <laughs> you can't stop them. They, they've got the moderator <laughs> hat and, you yeah. know, it's just like this out of control monster. Um, I mean, luckily, I... that's the that's the minority uh, of panels, though. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say. I mean, my advice is, is the same as John's with just the additional advice that if you do find yourself in the role of moderator, uh, one, one thing that I've come to realize is if you're preparing sort of a, a list of questions that, that you want to sort of guide the, the topic, on the one hand, you should be prepared to be flexible so that if the conversation starts to kind of veer in a different direction, that's also interesting and on point to kind of be willing to let it go that way as long as it's not going off on an unrelated tangent. And uh, at the opposite extreme, I would say make sure that you bring about 10 times as many questions as you think you're actually going to have time for, because there's nothing worse than being a moderator and kind of getting through your list and looking at your watch and realizing you're only halfway through the time, you know, you have allotted. Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to remember as a as an attendee is that, you know, if you get into one of these panels that has like a, a windbag on it or something and you're like, ah, oh, this is this is uh, this is not interesting. You know, you can just get up and leave. I mean, uh, people do it all the time. I mean, you know. If, if you do that, though, I would say, you know, try to try to let the door close, you know, because not everybody does that. And it's like, you know, uh, it can be a little annoying when when that keeps happening. But um, but no, I mean, there's you can definitely unobtrusively slip out of the room. So, I, I mean, my, my big piece of advice, this was actually something else Robert Silverberg said, but like, don't use the panel as an excuse to hard sell mm -hmm. your book. Mm -hmm. That's like, oh, it's so annoying. And I mean, the thing is, like, if you just try to hard sell your book nonstop. You're not going to like, A, you're going to annoy everyone and B, no one's going to want to buy your book anyway. Whereas if you're just, in, if you just seem interesting and you're, you know, you talk about the topic that's going to interest people in, in your work a lot more than, you know, just pitching it over and over again. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, uh, a sort of a good example to show why, or like how, how important conventions have become to, to me, like, you know, that I, I enjoy them so much. I mean, um, you know, well, first of all, I met my wife, Christy, at a convention. Uh, we met at the World Fantasy Convention, sort of randomly at the bar. 
you know, and uh, but then we we reconnected on online after, and and she was actually she was a uh, she was our pod turn here on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy uh, for a while. You know, she was doing our show notes and whatnot. You know, so that's how we got to know each other, and then and then eventually, you know, we struck up a relationship, and and uh, you know, so and then once we once we decided to get married, you know, um, we we were talking about like, well, when to do it, and 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 whatnot, and uh, and so we just decided, uh, you know, to do it at Worldcon. Because, uh, I, I mean, I was also, I mean, I was up for the Hugo Award for the first time. So, I mean, that was, you know, so we were obviously going and we knew a lot of our friends would be going. And we, we figured, well, I mean, we could do it here uh, in Lompoc um, and, uh, you know, sort of uh, force everybody to buy a plane ticket, you know, to for this one thing. Whereas if we did it at the convention, you know, it would be a lot easier for our friends to make an excuse to come because, you know, they, they could also go to the convention. Um, and so we did it. We did it at Worldcon. Um, and uh, the funny thing is, too, um, you know, so we did it at this place called The Grove in Reno because um, it was in Worldcon was in Reno that year. And then it turns out George R. R. Martin also got married there <laughs> during the convention. Later uh, that same day, right? Yeah, yeah. Later that same day. Yeah. Dave was saying that if uh, he had known, he would have hidden the bushes uh, <laughs> yeah. so, he could, so he could watch. OK, I just, I just had some funny stories I wanted to mention. I'm not sure if these are true or not, but but they're fun, <laughs> funny, and that's good enough for me. So I, I heard like back in the '60s, it was like uh, uh, sort of a tradition that all the fans would get naked and jump in the hotel pool all at the same time at every convention. Anyone ever I heard about that? Uh, I hope that's not true. <laughs> um, I you know, I cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> we got to ask Robert Silverberger; he would know. We'll have to bring him on as a guest geek. Just to ask him that. <laughs> Let's call him up right now. <laughs> anyway, I think we got to bring that back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, <laughs> you you get right on that, Dave. <laughs> I, I would frown upon that being brought back. I mean, for one. Uh, and then, like, I I heard this story one time where this this like old time author. Uh, showed up at a convention. He had been invited as the guest of honor, and he was talking to the you know the the person running the con committee or whatever, and said, uh, "So where's the fan who's going to have sex with me?" <laughs> and the person was like, "What?" You know, he said, "Well, you know, because I'm the guest of honor. You know, there's like a fan who's supposed to have sex with me." And she was like, uh, "I think you're on your own there, dude. We don't we don't do that." And he's like, "But I'm the guest of honor," and uh, I don't know. <laughs> Where, where, what was this convention taking place in 12th century England? <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? Nobody's ever heard. I, I don't know. I just I, heard I, that I, one time. Yeah, yeah, I've only heard of. I've only heard about that from you. So. <laughs> Does anyone else have any other sort of fa funny, uh, funny stories, or like funny rumors? Oh, there was also actually I have another one. So I mean, this is sort of a notorious thing, but I guess there there's this notorious thing where there was this. Um, these fans at a convention who are kind of into um, BDSM sort of stuff. And they hung their um, harness type thing from the spout, whatever, in the, the sprinkler in the ceiling. Yeah. And it ended up, you know, tearing, like, <laughs> like tearing out of the ceiling and flooding the whole hotel. And yeah, I, I, did, I did hear about that. that and it that, actually, it actually I, like ruined uh, that convention, right? Yeah, yeah they, they were not invited back next year. <laughs> I, I did hear that rumor. I, I mean, I guess I have kind of a funny story. Uh, uh, so when I met Patrick Rothfuss, uh, who wrote The Name of the Wind, 
you know, his novel hadn't come out at that point, I think. But I mean, he was at a he was at WizCon and and I and I met him, and so I was sitting with a group of people, and and so we were all just chatting, and he had this he was carrying around a backpack, and so at some point, like you know, we're chatting and he's chatting with us, and as he's chatting, he pulls it up his backpack and he starts digging around in there. So he takes out he takes out these these two vials, and and so like one vial has like some white powder in it, and the other vial has some sort of black stuff in it, and so we're like, well, what what do you got there? Um, and so he, he says, well, okay, well, this one, the white, the white one, he said, uh, this is a, you know, a powdered caffeine or, or something like that. Um, and he's like, okay. Um, and this is, what's the other one? And, and he's like, oh, this is a uh, activated charcoal. It's like, I don't know, what do you use that for? Why are you carrying that? He's like, in case someone tries to poison me. Um, <laughs> and I said, uh, why, why are you worried about someone trying to poison you? And he's like, oh, I'm not, I've got the activated charcoal. <laughs> <laughs> and to this date, I don't know if that was just a joke. Like, was was that was that like a prop comic, basically, or was he serious? I don't know. I mean, if I ever got poisoned, I, I wouldn't be laughing then. I wish I had some activated charcoal. <laughs> exactly. And actually, as an editor who rejects a lot of writers, it's probably better for me to be carrying around the activated charcoal than him. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I, I think all those rejected writers would have much more reason to poison me than any anybody would have to poison Pat Rothis. I mean, so Chris, you you mentioned that you know since you moved away from New York that you were gonna you know, be going to a lot more conventions so you could keep yeah. in touch with everyone. Like what, what kind of conventions have you gone to recently? Um, well, I mean, I actually just got back last week from uh, my first ICFO convention, the International Conference of Fantastic in the Arts that you mentioned earlier, I believe was your first convention, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to explain maybe it's like half academic? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a unique uh, convention among these that we're talking about because yeah, a good 50% or more of it seems to be devoted. It's an, ac an actual academic conference like you might see in other uh, disciplines where uh, students and, and professors and whatnot are coming from universities all around uh, the world, really, uh, presenting actual papers uh, that they've written, you know, scholarly papers on various topics in uh, on, on fantastic literature. And, you know, so there's that whole track of programming going on and there are awards given out at the award ceremony related to that. Um, and then at the same time, the other half of it is more like uh, a more literary leaning uh, regular science fiction and fantasy convention like a reader con or, or a world fantasy where or, or a capclave, let's say, um, where the you know, you've got readings and panels. And I mentioned also capclave. I, I've been to a couple of those. I'm. Uh, that's that's in Rockville, Maryland, and that's sort of a convention that uh, builds itself as sort of um, focusing on fiction in, in the short form. That's sort of what they're known for. They give out the um, the the short fiction award there every year. I, I've really been recently enjoying uh, going to Wisconsin, uh, which is uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, every year. Um, and then another convention that that's got a lot definite overlap with with the science fiction and fantasy field that I've been going to ever since it, it started um, the was the is the historical novel society conference which as the name implies focuses on historical fiction um, they had their first convention in 2005 and, and it's every other year since then and you know they're the guests of honor have definitely there's been a lot of overlap I mean you've got not only the, the hardcore historical fiction writers like Bernard Cornwell and Jack White but you've also got uh, you know, they've had uh, Harry Turtledove as a guest of honor and uh, Diana Gabaldon and Sharon K. Penman. I mean, you know, different pe people where there's um, there's a lot of overlapping interest, uh, I think, with people who read science fiction and fantasy as well. 
Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think if you're trying to decide which conventions to go to, uh, like Dave mentioned earlier, um, you know, in the back of Asimov's, they usually have a, uh, uh, you know, a listing of conventions that are coming up. Uh, Ansible, uh, which is a, you know, perennial uh, Hugo Award nominee uh, for uh, fanzine. Um, I guess now they're technically calling it semi-prozine, but um, anyway, it's 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 online for free. If you Google Ansible by David Langford, um, it has a very good convention listing as well. Uh, and the other thing too, like, I mean, if you just want to meet one of your favorite authors or whatever, usually if you go to their website, like you can find something that will mention their public appearances. Um, like, I mean, like I have something like that on my website and a lot of, a lot of people do, but uh, I'm actually going to a convention this weekend uh, since, you know, since we're speaking of it, there's one called FogCon up in the San Francisco area. Uh, it's a smaller convention. It's only the second one they've done. But uh, so, I mean, I don't really know much about it at this point, except that I know a bunch of the people who are running it and I know uh, that they, they're, they're con savvy and, uh, and, and I trust that, uh, that they'll, that they'll, that it'll be a good con. And I mean, cause I heard very good things about the first one. Uh, and then later later this year, uh, Dave and I will actually both be at uh, the Confluence Science Fiction Convention in uh, Pittsburgh. And uh, Dave, do you want to talk about that one a little bit? You've been to it a number of times, right? Oh yeah, I've been to it like the last ten years or something. Um, yeah, it's it's in Pittsburgh. It's it's one of the smaller conventions I've ever been to. Uh, so it actually would be a pretty good one uh, if you've never been to one before. It's you know it's uh, not overwhelming or anything. It's just in this uh, DoubleTree Hilton hotel and. Yeah, and they have most of the standard stuff. You know, there's a dealer's room and panels and, you know, room parties and, and stuff. And, yeah, and I'll be there and John and, you know, you'll, you can't help running into us probably repeatedly because uh, mm. it's, uh, you know, because it's uh, such a small convention. Yeah, actually, one of the great things about conventions, too, like mentioning, you know, how you just run into people like, I mean, the, at these smaller ones, like like something like ReaderCon in particular, like I'm thinking like ReaderCon is in July also um, and it's in the Boston area. Um, it's in Burlington, technically, but in sort of the Boston area, like, you know, you go to this, you know, go, go to the con and and the hotel is just really well set up so that like, you know, you just always like run into people just like walking from uh, place to place. And, and the, like, the dealer's room is really a great place to run into people, especially at something like ReaderCon because people are it's, because it's so book focused. Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember one time when I went to I went there and I was in the dealer's room and it was just like, God, I mean. I had only intended to pop in and walk around and I was just like in there for hours because <laughs> yeah. I, I just kept running into people as I, as I was walking around and just getting into conversations. So, you know, other things we mentioned, um, we mentioned Worldcon and world and world fantasy. Uh, those are like the two big ones I would say, like, like I, those are my favorites usually. Uh, and world fantasy is probably my, my all time favorite convention, but so Worldcon is in um, usually it's in late August or early September. Um, although it varies a bit. Uh, it's always in the, it's always around that time though. Um, and this year it's in Chicago. And uh, then World Fantasy also moves around. It's always uh, some somewhere around Halloween. And uh, this year it's in Toronto. So um, you know if you're interested in any of those, you can Google those and uh, find out more information about all of them. And uh, you know they always have guests of honor. Um, and so like that's actually a good way to uh, find out whether or not you want to go to this particular convention. Because like if um, if one of your favorite authors is the guest of honor, then, you know, they're going to be on a lot of programming. Like, you know, they, they do, they do several items every day. They'll have special reading events. They'll probably have a live interview. And, you know, Dave, your, your, your initial question about this, you know, it, it really is true that, I mean, when, when we all met, we were basically living in the, you know, wider New York city area. And, um, you know, there it's like, you know, we kind of take it for granted that we had all these opportunities for genre events that go on there, you know, like the KGB readings and the New York Review of Science Fiction readings and the CIFWA reception is there every year. And there's all sorts of, you know, 
events like you know book launch parties in the city but once once you move away from from a sort of point like that where there's all that stuff going on you know these these sorts of conventions are just a great way to keep in the loop and and you know to kind of keep yourself involved with the with the the community the the industry um and just to kind of you know keep in touch with the the friends that you you've made in the past at these events um you know it's it's definitely been a lifeline for me now that i've you know moved into more i don't know let's say the literary hinterlands of, of the country <laughs> Well, you were saying, Chris, that you're you're the only one of us who ever sort of walked cold into a convention. Um, what what did you how did you actually meet those first couple people? You know, I don't know if I just was lucky, or you know, I don't think I was. I think it's just that um, really there are just a lot of great, kind, warm people that go to these conventions. Because I remember just on the first day, probably just wandering around with a bewildered look on my face and. You know, at the time, uh, young upstart writer Carrie Vaughn just wandered up to me, who I had never met before in my life, and she just introduced herself and said, "You know, our, is this your first convention?" Because it probably looked like it was. And um, she said, "Well, well, you know, why don't you come hang out with, with me and my friends? And you know, we're going to be doing this later. We'll go to lunch." And sort of that that whole weekend, she and and her her little posse just kind of took me under their wing, mm. and you know, brought me around to room parties later that night which i probably wouldn't have even known about otherwise because i was so clueless yeah you know i i found that that's happened to me a number of times you know and i've made some really good friends that way you know we just sort of randomly run into people like uh you know blake charlton who we had on the show you know we met at a convention like that and just became really good friends and um also james sutter who we uh had on as a guest geek recently even you run into these people who are passionate about those things but then also passionate about something else like i mean like james sutter and i kind of bounded over uh uh, both of us loving death metal. You know, if you go to a convention, like don't wear a geeky, like uh science fiction t-shirt, like, you know, wear a t-shirt that says something about one of your other interests. Like, you know, I I like to wear my metal t-shirts at a convention because then it's like, well, if somebody also likes metal, they'll see my metal shirt and maybe they'll ring up. Oh, Hey, I like that band or whatever, you know, sort of a good way to broach a wider subject, uh, you know, and you can connect with people on other levels as well. Usually in the, in the room where the registration is, there's a, a board up where people will list um, parties that they're hosting later that night. You know, a very informal, usually uh, just sort of a bunch of people gathering in a room. Um, sometimes in the in the convention suite or in, in a in some other offsite location, but usually just up in 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 one of the rooms in the hotel. And it's and you know they're, they're generally open to to anyone who who's at the convention to coming in. It's not like you need a special invitation uh, most of the time. And and actually, even if even if you're not going to just one of the parties, uh, like usually the cons have a con suite where they'll have snacks and stuff and in in free sodas and whatever. You know, often um, often book publishers will throw a party. You know, to sort of uh, you know they'll pin up a bunch of their book covers on the wall and uh, and th and that kind of thing. Um, and so one to look out for is like the tour party. You know, a lot of conventions have a tour party. Uh, you know, WorldCon and World Fantasy always do. Um, and then some of the other ones uh, do, like WizCon usually has one, uh, but they usually throw a really good party. And some, sometimes the parties are a little more elaborate or themed. I mean, there was a great party that uh, at the most recent World Fantasy convention that Nora Jemison, N.K. Jemison threw, that was a pajama party where, you know, mm -hmm. you were encouraged to wear pajamas, but but more than that, it was 
she had a whole bunch of sort of uh, retro games and stuff there. And so over the course of this party, I at one point was playing Hungry Hungry Hippos with Ellen Datlow. <laughs> uh, it, at another point in the party, I was uh, the spinner calling out the colors for a game of Twister in which uh, Karen, yeah. Lord, Karen Lord ended up being the champ that night. I mean, it was just yeah. sort of these bizarre moments that, you know, it's like, what, what is going on here? Yeah. Well, and the you know the the George R. R. Martin fan group, the Brotherhood Without Banners, they oh, yeah. they often throw really good parties. Actually, when Worldcon was in L.A., I guess someone you know one of the people in the group worked in Hollywood or something, and somehow they got this giant prop castle portcullis towers thing, you know, that you walked through to get into the party, mm -hmm. and that that was pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, at one of those parties, I remember George Martin was actually there, and he was sitting and hanging out with all his fans. Uh, and George R. R. Martin, he's been sending people on quests too at oh, conventions. Really? Yeah, in order to become uh, an official member of the Brotherhood or Knight or something. Yeah, he, he sends him on bizarre quests. I think, like you know, find me a a cheesesteak sandwich, and it's you know at one o'clock <laughs> in the morning. Um, and and people have apparently gone to great lengths to to fulfill these, you know, uh, satisfy these quests. Oh my God, that's awesome! I I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Occasionally, like people have done like tea parties in the afternoon, which is actually, I think, a really cool idea because, you know, sometimes, you know, you get sort of worn out on going to panels and stuff. And but you're like, oh, I could I could, you know, go with, you know, I, I could use some tea or I could use some snacks or, you know, just chatting, you know. Um, and so like Strange Horizons often throws a tea party. Well, in some some conventions, they'll have coffee clutches. Oh, yeah. And, and or literary beers. And so, they, you know, it's it's kind of that thing where you're sitting around a table with one or two well-known authors um, but you have to sign up for it usually like at the registration desk and so it's important that you know about that and you go and sign up for it right away because those things fill up really fast one other thing that i know they do at worldcon and likely at other conventions too is uh if if you're a an aspiring writer they also you can sign up for writing workshops that they do at, at worldcon at the most recent one in, in reno actually i was i was one of the the sort of workshop leaders there, um, and they they break it down. It sort of follows the the you know the Milford model, the the Clarion model of of critiquing. But you you know you you get put into a group of three other writers who have submitted their work in advance, um, and there's two uh, moderators. Um, you know, uh, bigger name usually the uh, writers or editors or public you know whatnot, um, and uh, you can get your your. Your pieces critiqued that way they um you know it's 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 pretty extensive too i mean there there were oh i don't remember i mean something like uh 30 or 40 different um workshop leaders and instructors uh, you know going on there's so there's about 15 sessions that happen throughout the weekend for writers so that's also something um people might be interested in looking into all right so i think that's pretty much all we have to say about conventions uh at the moment i guess just to wrap things up chris do you want to talk about uh some of your writing stuff you're working on uh, sure. Um, as probably has become obvious from this discussion, uh, a lot of what I write is historically themed. Um, and uh, so far, uh, I've mostly been writing short fiction. I've had about a dozen stories that have appeared in various magazines, uh, most recently, as you mentioned, in, in Black Static. And uh, I had a, uh, a piece that appeared uh, most recently, I guess, in Alan Kozowski's Inhuman magazine. Currently, I've been working on longer form fiction. Um, the, the piece, as you mentioned earlier, that I'm working on now is a novel that returns the Lady Godiva legend to its, uh, you know, hopefully a more plausible historical context. 
given that the legend as we know it of her riding naked on horseback through the town almost certainly did not happen the way that uh, we've received it. Um, but uh, I, I do put that back into its uh, less anachronistic 11th century uh, English setting. And uh, the story is, is really something of a psychological thriller. See if there are any uh, agents or editors listening who uh, are intrigued by that. How, uh, how should they get in touch with you? You can contact me through my website, which is www.christophermsavasco.com. All right, great. So, John, what have you been up to lately, publishing-wise? Yeah, and so I just had a new anthology come out uh, called Armored. It's uh, it's out from Bain, and it's uh, you know it's it's an it's an anthology of stories about uh, power armor and mecha. You know, Dave has a story in there, um, and uh, and actually, uh, you can if you go to johnjosephadams.com/armored. Uh, there's a official website for the book set up there. You can read some free stories and uh, read interviews with the authors and just find out more about the book. And Dave, you want to mention like your story in Lightspeed or something? Yeah, so I guess if people want to check out something I wrote, uh, the March issue of Lightspeed has a short story of mine called Beauty, which is sort of a twisted contemporary take on uh, the legend of Beauty and the Beast. And this is a, a story I'm, I'm quite proud of, but I've actually read it to crowds uh, a number of times and People always laugh a lot and seem to really enjoy it. So I'm, I'm really happy it's uh, finally out there in the world with a great illustration by Gail and Dara. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Chris, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. And thanks to Morgan Spurlock for being on the show. Uh, if you uh, have any questions or comments about anything we talked about today, please post a comment on the uh, post for this episode over at wire.com. And you can find that by going to our website at geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the link for episode 57. All right. Well, that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.